In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. For me, one of the most rewarding aspects of Notably Disney is having the opportunity to talk with truly incredible individuals, whether they are fans and connoisseurs of the Walt Disney Company, or may have had a large part in contributing to the work that we all love and deconstruct. And so that makes today's guest a real honor. You'll be listening to my conversation with Dave Bossert, who has been heavily involved in the company in a wide variety of capacities um, over several decades. So you'll maybe be familiar with his work through the form of books. He's become quite the author over the past decade, but you probably unexpectedly got to know some of his work through the special effects and visual effects that you would see in a lot of the Disney animated films during the Renaissance era. So this is actually going to encompass a two-part interview, two-part episode. Um, So in this first part, we're going to examine his connections to Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, and that very much came about through the Remembering Roy E. Disney book that he wrote uh, that was released about six years ago, and this actually marks the just o- just a, b- a bit over the tenth anniversary of Roy's passing. So we're going to reflect on Roy's life and his relationship to Roy on this episode, and in the subsequent episode, you're going to learn more about Dave's role in Fantasia 2000, which commemorated its twentieth anniversary earlier this year. It was wonderful to talk with Dave, and so without any further ado, here's my conversation with him as we discuss Remembering Roy E. Disney. Dave Bossert is a celebrated author, animator, and producer, having worked for the Walt Disney Company for several decades, and he started out um, as an effects animator during the beginning of the Disney Renaissance in the 1980s to heading special projects for Walt Disney Animation Studios, and even being involved in the process of developing attractions and experiences at the Disney theme parks 
you've had your hands in a a wide variety of spaces uh, within the Walt Disney Company. And more recently, folks know you as an author, having written a number of popular books for and about Disney, including Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Cartoons, and Ken Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Walt Disney Studios. Uh, Today on Notably Disney, we're going to have some really good conversations. And uh, for this first part, we're going to talk about your book, Remembering Roy E. Disney, Memories and Photos of a Storied Life, which honors the late Roy E. Disney, who passed just about 10 years ago. And we're going to be kind of examining uh, your relationship with Roy and different recollections and uh, depictions of Roy um, in the media as well. So all this and more today on Notably Disney. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Hey, Brett. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, it's so, such a thrill to be able to talk with someone who has been really part of so many different facets of Disney and a wide variety of capacities and certainly your relationship with Roy Disney, who, as all of us know, was uh, Walt's nephew, was really special and unique. And I'm hoping we could maybe start out by examining a little bit more about, uh, and I know you discussed this a little bit in the book, but for our listeners who may not be aware, what led you to focus on kind of crafting a, a a series of recollections of the last few decades of Roy Disney's life? Well, uh, Brett, you know, the way this book came about was really kind of interesting. Um, Roy had uh, passed away in 2009, in December of 2009, and uh, a number of months later, uh, really it was the following year, uh, Don Hahn and I were doing uh, a program on Fantasia, Fantasia 2000 and Destino, at the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And uh, we we kind of flew into Boston. You know, he came in from Los Angeles. I actually ha- had been in Spain doing an event at the uh, Salvador Dali Museum uh, outside of Barcelona. And, and I flew in from Spain and we met up in Boston. And we were put up in this really nice little boutique hotel, and I can't remember the name of the hotel off the top of my head, but it was right next to the Boston Garden. And uh, and in the ground floor of that, that hotel was uh, a lounge, and it was called the Ruby Lounge. I remember that. Uh, and Don and I met up in there uh, uh, that evening that we both arrived in Boston, and we were having a drink and, and just catching up. And and uh, uh, you can't talk about Fantasia, Fantasia 2000, or Destino without talking about Roy Disney. Uh, Roy was the driving force to get Fantasia 2000 done, uh, which really was a continuation of his uncle Walt's uh, uh, vision for this ever-evolving concert film. And uh, and he also was the guy responsible for completing Destino, uh, which was a collaboration between Walt Disney and Salvador Dali uh, back in 1946. And uh, and then, of course, the original Fantasia, uh, Roy was about 10 years old when, th- when that was released, but uh, he always said it was one of his favorite films uh, from the company. 
And so, uh, you know, we were trading stories about Roy. You know, he, he had just passed and uh, we, were, we were sort of just trading these different stories we had. And, and Don looked at me and he said, Dave, you ought to put some of these stories in a book. And, uh, and that's really how that book really came about. Um, and I, you know, we went and did our presentation at the Boston Museum of Fine Art. We had a great time. Uh, we, I, you know, we, we both fly back to Los Angeles. And over the next couple of months, I, I couldn't quite get that uh, comment that Don made out of my head. You know, why don't you just put all these stories together? And I, uh, I decided to uh, give it a shot. And believe it or not, I, I had, I was in my office and I had a meeting drop out. So I kind of had this like free half hour, 40 minutes or so in my office. And I went on to Amazon and I found a book on uh, how to write a book. And, and I ordered it from Amazon. And I have to tell you, I never really finished reading the entire thing. Uh, I got through to a part that said, write an introduction <coughs> and a sample chapter. And, uh, and that's what I did. I sat down and I wrote an introduction of what I thought this book would be. And I wrote a sample chapter uh, for it. And uh, at that point, um, uh, I sent a cold email uh, to an editor at uh, uh, Disney Publishing, and uh, you know she responded right away, and you know she had known Roy, and she knew who I was, and I knew her name, but we had never really met before, and I was going to be in New York on business, uh, you know, uh, within a month or so of that exchange, and we agreed to meet up for lunch. And so we had this lovely lunch at the Gramercy Tavern in Lower Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I had already sent her the introduction and, and the sample chapter. And, uh, and so over lunch, she said, you know, we, we would love to do this book. And, and that was kind of how I got my first book deal. Uh, and it was, it was really kind of comical because after that lunch, I was walking down the street in New York City and said, holy crap, I've got to write a book, you know, <laughs> I had never done that before, and so, uh, you know, I, I went off, and, and I wanted the book really not to be a biography, but really a collection of stories that when somebody finished reading it, they would have a sense of who Roy Disney was as a human being, you know, what kind of a person was he? It wasn't going to be a book that was going to air dirty laundry or, you know, be scandalous or anything like that. It really was, I wanted to write a book about the Roy that I knew, that, that I worked for and, and over time became friends with. Uh, and, and that's really what I think I was able to accomplish based on a lot of the comments I've gotten from people. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It, it comes through very clearly that this is almost like looking through someone's photo album, but with little notes throughout. And the narrative that you create helps establish not only moments in your rapport with Roy, but also some of the big moments of his, the latter part of his career and life as well. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, I wouldn't have done the book uh, without the cooperation of his family. And, and the first person I reached out to uh, to make sure it was okay that I would do this book uh, was his eldest son, Roy Patrick Disney. And, and I've known Roy Pat for, for many years, and, and, and he was open to it, but he also, I think as the eldest of, of the siblings, you know, he had some really good questions for me, you know, about you know, exactly what it was I was going to be writing about and those kinds of things. And, uh, and I thought, you know, it was appropriate to ask those kinds of questions. And then, you know, Roy's widow, Leslie Disney, um, you know, I, I talked with her on the phone for almost an hour. Uh, and it was the same kind of thing. I wanted to reassure her that this was not, uh, you know, some, some tell-all book or something, but it was actually a tribute uh, to Roy E. And, uh, and, and just relaying all these, these wonderful stories that I had and other people had, because I wanted to include stories from other folks. And so, you know, I, I had talked to Don Han, obviously, and, you know, I talked to other people um, uh, that were close to him and, uh, and got, I wanted to get, you know, uh, a sort of a, a really uh, well-rounded view of him as a person. Uh, and, and that's really was the focus of it. And I think at the end, you know, uh, Roy Pat wrote the introduction, obviously, but, but Leslie, his widow was, was very happy with, with the outcome of the book. And so were the rest of, uh, Roy's children, Tim and Abby and Susan. Very nice. Well, yeah, definitely having that family support is essential when you are covering Roy's life and, and someone who is so visible in in the media as well. Could you share, Dave, about your earliest memories of interacting with Roy and what those were like? Well, you know, I gotta tell you, I think one of my earliest memories of Roy was uh, when it was, it wasn't long after we had uh, we, we always, as, as the animators and the artists, we always say we were kicked off the studio lot back in, uh, 1985, 86. And, and we were, we all went into this like warehouse building in Glendale by the Imagineering facility. And, uh, and I remember Roy coming in the building and at the time he smoked and he, you know, he smoked non-filtered cigarettes. And you know, the the Disney facilities were were non-smoking facilities. Uh, but I think for everybody except Roy. Uh, and Roy would come in puffing on a cigarette, and he'd go down the hallway. <laughs> and and occasionally there'd be, you know, some new security guard chasing after him, saying, "Sir, sir, I'm sorry, you can't smoke in the building," <laughs> not knowing it was Roy Disney. And, uh, uh, but I, I, I remember distinctly that he put out one of his cigarettes in a potted plant that had moss around the base of it and the moss caught fire. So it was, it was really kind of a funny story, but, um, he, uh, he really was an incredibly nice man because the one thing that I admired most about him was that he treated everybody the same. 
you could be the president of the United States or you could be the custodian or a security host or one of the artists. And he talked to you and, uh, and you know, had a conversation with you and was respectful to you uh, like he was to anyone else. And, and I always admired that. And I always thought that was just, you know, one of one of the great qualities that he had was that he, he was just a genuinely interested and nice person and treated everybody uh, the same. Absolutely. And I, I love the anecdotes you throw in throughout the book regarding how not only was Roy kind and interested in others, but he was also very down to earth despite his visibility and and wealth and, and some of those factors. You, you talk about how he would just love going to Costco and hanging out there and uh, all these different uh, little tidbits that really give depth to him as just a human. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite photographs, by the way, is of Roy eating a hot dog uh, in the concession area of Costco. Uh, and uh, he, he would go there on a regular basis and he would shop. Um, I remember once um, uh, uh, somebody put up on social media, uh, social media that they had spotted him at the Taco Bell uh, in Burbank, and they they said he had this, this, and this. You know, they rattled off what they thought he was eating, and and a couple days later, uh, I was in a meeting with him, and somebody said, "Hey, Roy, somebody spotted you at Taco Bell." He goes, "Oh yeah, I heard." He goes, "But he got my order wrong." <laughs> and I just thought it was great. I mean, you know, he he was just a regular guy. You know, he ate at Taco Bell. He shopped at Costco. He went to Savon. I I, I remember uh, him coming into a theater for a screening we were doing on Fantasia, and he had he had broken his leg, was in a wheelchair for a little bit. And then he was out of the wheelchair. And when he came into the screening, he came in with a cane. And we all applauded because he was out of his wheelchair. And he held up the cane. And he says, I got this at Savon for fourteen ninety five. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like he knew the value of a dollar, you know. No kidding. That's hilarious. And, you know, it speaks to that he was just, you know, regular uh, individual and in that sense could just relate to others. And also, you know, a child of the Depression. I mean, he grew up in the 1930s. And, you know, the, the 1930s were, you know, the, the Disney Studios was, was doing fairly well. But, you know, they were also had some rough patches when at the end of the 30s when the war started and they lost the revenue coming over from, you know, box office revenue from Europe because of the war, you know, things like that. So, you know, he, he I think it, it just spoke to the fact that he was raised well by his parents. Absolutely. And speaking of those positive qualities, you allocate a good amount of space in the book toward the toward the role of generosity. And I'm wondering, is there a lesson that Roy perhaps taught you or imparted to you about the role of generosity in society? Well, I think that, you know, he was very magnanimous. That that would be the word I would use. He was just a magnanimous individual. He, he was always making sure people were included uh, and, and he was generous to a fault. Uh, I mean, you know, when we finished Fantasia 2000, 
um, you know, he gifted to us each. I, I think he bought 10 of them, uh, each of the directors, the producer, myself, and I think one or two other people on the film. He gave us, he, he gave us Dale Chihuly glass sculptures uh, from the Dale Chihuly studio up in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And, I mean, it was just like we were flawed. I mean, none of us had any idea. And he did it out of his own pocket, and it was his way of saying thank you to us. Wow, that's that's pretty special. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was amazing. I, I actually, I, I had a, a pedestal with a vitrine uh, made uh, to uh, uh, place that sculpture because it came with a base and there was an engraved plaque that, you know, it's, you know, to Dave, you know, my heartfelt thanks, Roy, you know. I think I have a picture of it in the book. Don't hold me yes. to it. I, I paraphrased what the plaque said. So, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, it was it was that kind of stuff that he did. Uh, you know, another another great story is, um, you know, when we were uh, we were going to get the True Life Adventures out on DVD, and you know, all of those projects have budgets, you know. And, and home entertainment at the time had a specific budget. And, uh, you know, Roy really wanted to shoot the introductions to those True Life Adventures at the Animal Kingdom in Orlando because it was a perfect tie-in, you know. And, and Roy was responsible for Animal Kingdom down in Orlando. He was the one that pushed Michael to build that, Michael Eisner, to build that park down in Orlando. And so... You know, I uh, he, he picked up the phone, he called me one day, he said he wanted to get these True Life Adventures out on DVD, and I was part of that project. I was one of the producers on uh, of, of the DVD collection. And, you know, I had the unenviable uh, task of calling him up to tell him that we didn't have it in the budget to fly everybody to Florida to um, shoot those introductions, and we may have to look for locations in Southern California. Uh, and there was no shortage. I mean, we could have shot at the beach and up in the mountains and out in the desert. You know, there was plenty of locations that we could drive to to shoot. Uh, and Roy, he was definitely disappointed, and he understood. He understood the budget ramifications. And, uh, and he said, okay, and, you know, we ended the call, and... The next day, he called me in my office, and he said to me, he goes, let me ask you, he goes, could we shoot him down in Florida if I flew everybody down there on my plane? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me let me go off and find out, you know. So, I, But we wound up, you know, because he was going to fly us on his own dime, um, we wound up making a deal to get hotel rooms down on the property in Florida, and uh, we kind of put this whole thing together to fit within the budget we had, and it worked. And, and again, it was just another, you know, example of his generosity. But I always, I always tell people it was like, it really was like your friend who had an old station wagon, and he'd say, hey, I'll, I'll drive us all. I got plenty of room. And he'd come around and pick you up. It was the same kind of thing, except he had a 737 parked over at Van Nuys Airport. And he was like, come on, guys, I'll take everybody down there. And we were like, OK. <laughs> That's very cool. And 
makes me think too, Dave, of you know Roy's um, investment in really Walt Disney and the whole Disney company's legacy in caring about animals and our planet. And you talk about Animal Kingdom, but also the the role of Disney Nature, which kind of came about uh, right right before his passing, and the this notion of Disney Nature documentaries. Uh, emerging once again on the big screen. Do you have a sense of how Roy played into that process, if at all? Yeah, you know, I mean, Roy was involved in the True Life Adventures back in the 50s, you know, and I have some great pictures of that in the book. Um, And, you know, he uh, had a great affinity for the environment and for animals uh, he was a big supporter of the uh, Peregrine Falcon uh, organization. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, really pushed to uh, get the Animal Kingdom uh, up and running down in Florida, really you know, to get that, that whole park built. Uh, the, the one interesting thing about that park that I have to say is that there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that Disney never really publicizes or talks about. You know, sometimes you hear people, you know, critical of Disney, uh, like, you know, critical of, of you know, uh, animal parks and things like that. Uh, and Disney's such a big organization, they always seem to have a target on their back. And I think it's unfair because if you look at the animal kingdom, there's a lot of things going on in the background that, that the guests never see. You know, there's a, there's a complete veterinary team down there. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that I found was that uh, they were involved, their bird aviary area, um, down there has been involved with uh, bringing back um, uh, a particular species. I'm trying to remember uh, Indonesian or uh, there's a particular species of kingfisher uh, that's on the ver- that was on the verge of extinction. And uh, the bird avery uh, group down in at the animal kingdom had been participating. Uh, with an organization in Guam out in the Pacific on uh, a breeding program to to breed more of these birds and then to reintroduce them uh, into the environment uh, in Guam. Uh, so there's a lot of things like that that are going on. I had the pr- privilege of, of being uh, in the... Um, uh, in the veterinary area uh, while we were down in a, at the Animal Kingdom. And by the way, anytime I went to Orlando with Roy, we always went over to the Animal Kingdom. That was a favorite place for him to, to go visit. But I remember on one of the trips, we were down there, and we were right there in, in, in an operating room where they were doing a, a, an annual exam on a cheetah. Uh, and, uh, and then at another time we were there, I think there's a picture of it in the book. Uh, they were, they were extracting a tooth from a silverback gorilla and we were standing right there next to this gorilla that was knocked out on the table while they were doing the work. I mean, it's just incredible experiences that I had, I had the opportunity to have, uh, because of him, because he was like, yeah, come on, you know, come with us. You're, you're here, you know, come, come over and, and do this with us. So he was he was always including people. 
That's that's fantastic. And uh, for readers or listeners, in case they're interested in checking out that picture of the gorilla, it's on uh, page 173. But I, I love those uh, the notion of being able to capture an inside look at Animal Kingdom because that's especially the veterinary team because that's not something that's terribly accessible to everybody. No, and and you know something, and, and nor should it be. You know what I mean? I think that there's all this good work going on uh, behind the scenes that you know they, like I said, they don't really sort of talk about it, but but they are doing a lot of good things down at that animal kingdom, and, and uh, you know I I think it's a fantastic facility. Uh, it, you know, it's a facility that uh, is doing research, is doing you know breeding programs and and you know some of these some of these animals are endangered and and it's facilities like disney's animal kingdom and places like that that are actually uh uh trying to save some of these uh uh animals from extinction absolutely and i feel like the imagineering story documentary that premiered on Disney Plus uh, last December in its fourth episode does a really nice look at the evolution of Animal Kingdom and also, per your point, just showing the the good work that they accomplished. Yeah, yeah which I, I think is really great. Kind of a, along the lines, one thing that was really fascinating in the Imagineering Story documentary is not only it focuses on the evolution of the Disney theme parks, and uh, but also some of the, the key leadership um, team members and players and, and Roy E. Disney, of course, um, is illustrated because they talk about the, the different directions the company has taken over time. And I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to uh, your understandings of um, some of these different, especially being part of Disney for a number of years, some of the transitions in CEOs over the years and, and Roy's uh, involvement in that. Well, I, you know, I think that, you know, Roy, uh, uh, you know, if you go back to 83, 84, uh, Roy made the decision in the living room of his home uh, in Toluca Lake, California, uh, to uh, save the Walt Disney Company. I mean, at that point, there was a financier named Saul Steinberg, who was, uh, you know, had built up a big stock position in the company. He was looking to take over the company and he wanted to uh, sell off its pieces because he thought the pieces were more valuable than the whole. Uh, and, and it was Roy who decided to uh, really fight to save the family business. And, and so, you know, he was able to, uh, they were able to get Sid Bass of the Bass Brothers of Texas to come in as white knights and take a big position in the company. They ultimately bought back uh, the block of stock from Saul Steinberg at a premium uh, and, and they, they saved the company. And during that period, uh, they did a leadership change and, and that created a rift within the Disney family because uh, Walt Disney's son-in-law, Ron Miller, uh, was the CEO at the time. And, uh, and so with him being pushed out, uh, it allowed them to bring in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. Uh, and then, of course, Jeffrey Katzenberg and a bunch of other uh, Hollywood executives came in and really sort of turned not only the film studio around, but also uh, the company really started to, to get the company growing. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, during that period, there was a lot of good things that were done and there was some, you know, not so great things done, but ultimately, uh, it's led to, uh, you know, this, this huge expansion of the Disney organization on a global basis. And, and they've done some pretty wonderful things, you know? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it all goes back to that moment in Roy's, uh, in his living room. Uh, and, uh, and he was one of these guys that he was either all in 150% or he didn't want to be a part of it. And so when he made that choice to go all in on it, um, you know, that's really what started the, the big turnaround for the company. And, and also to get out from underneath that, what would, what would have, what would Walt have done type of attitude that was pervasive at the studio after Walt Disney had died. I remember, you know, when I started working at the company in, in early 1984, uh, you know, there was still a little bit of that, what would Walt have done mentality going on, you know, and that was, you know, what, uh, 20 years almost after, almost 20 years after Walt had died. And so I think they, they needed to get beyond that and, and bringing in some fresh, you know, fresh leadership and fresh management w allowed them to do that. Although, you know, again, uh, uh, after Frank Wells was killed in the helicopter crash, Michael kind of went off the rails a little bit. And there was a feud between Michael and Roy. And ultimately, Roy won. Michael got pushed out of the company. And uh, it, it allowed for uh, Bob Iger to take the reins of the company. And he, he's done a spectacular job uh, during his tenure uh, at the top of the company. You can't deny that. Absolutely. And what I appreciate in your book is that you address some of these tumultuous periods and, and Roy's role in them. And, and I recall reading in the recent Bob Iger autobiography um, where he's talking about his own uh, position and uh, stepping into role CEO and his relationship with Roy. He's pretty candid, too, about some of the tensions he experienced in, in terms of navigating those relationships with Michael Eisner and Roy Disney. Did In, in Roy's latter years of his life, did, once this all was behind him, did did you get a sense that he was encouraged by how it all unfolded and, and ultimately the direction the company was taking? Yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely believe that he, he was really pleased with, uh, uh, how the company, uh, was being led. Uh, he, he felt that the company was in good hands once Bob took over. And, and when you look at somebody like a Bob Iger, uh, you know, he's he's not just the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. He's also a fan of the Walt Disney Company. You know, he he understands the the history of the company um, and it, the company's legacy. He grew up watching uh, the Mickey Mouse Club uh, in the fifties, and so you know, he's he's somebody that that understands the the. The complexity uh, uh, of the brand, and I think he's just been an incredible steward of the brand. 
and and also you know in bringing in Pixar and bringing in um, uh, Marvel and and Lucasfilm and you know uh, the company is just firing on all cylinders and I think he's going to be a hard act to replace. Yeah, <laughs> one would not want to be his successor for those very reasons. I would imagine. Yeah. I, I, one thing you, you mentioned earlier that I'd like to just briefly touch on, if it's all right, is you talked about uh, Ron Miller, and I know that Ron and Diane Disney Miller, Walt's daughter, were chiefly responsible for the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And I know that the museum opened shortly before Roy's passing. I don't know what their relationship looked like during the, the last uh, bit of his life, but did he have any understanding or involvement in ultimately what became the Walt Disney Family Museum? Yeah, I don't think he was really involved with it, but, you know, I think, you know, Roy told me uh, that, you know, he, he had a relationship with Diane. Uh, they were cousins, uh, you know, and I think uh, after some time passage, they were communicating and they did occasionally talk on the phone. Um, and I think they were civil to one another, um, uh, but I don't think Ron ever got over, uh, you know, being pushed out of the company. Um, and, and I, as far as I know, I don't believe Roy ever, uh, had any conversations with, with Ron after that. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think, uh. The museum is is really nice and focusing on on Walt's life and both his triumphs and and pitfalls and everything yeah, in between. You know, I I agree with you on that. I, I just I I feel though that the museum was put up in San Francisco because it was closer to obviously where Diane and the family lived, and uh, it just felt to me like. I, I just wish, in my mind, I just wish it had been put down in Los Angeles, you know, maybe near uh, Griffith Park where the Gene Autry Museum is. I, I think it might have been a better location for it, but I think that there was, you know, just because of, of the dynamics of what had happened and everything, it, it went in up there. And, you know, with Diane gone now and Ron passing uh, a year ago or so, um, you know, it just, I, I hope that the museum continues, uh, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Sure. Yeah, well, and thinking about, that, you know, so many of these individuals who were um, paramount in the Walt Disney Company's history and Walt Disney personally, uh, with them being gone, what do you think is the, and thinking about more about Roy E. Disney, what's his lasting legacy? What do you think people will recall him for and also should know him for? Well, I, you know, personally, first and foremost, in my mind, I think whatever the Walt Disney Company is today to people, they have to owe a debt of gratitude to Roy E. Disney because the company wouldn't be what it is today had he not taken the steps in 83, uh, 84, to save the company. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, you know, you look at how big and how vast the Walt Disney Company is as a family entertainment organization and brand globally, it's because of him. If you can describe Roy in one word, what comes to mind? Magnanimous. 
definitely seems like that was evident based on some of the examples you illustrated. Yeah, I, I just, you know, he was just an incredibly nice man. I mean, you know, you what he presented himself as was what he was. You know, I, I mean, I can remember, you know, being in a restaurant, having dinner with him down in Orlando, and a little girl walked up, real timid little girl. She came up and she said, Mr. Disney, I just want you to know my family and I are having a wonderful time and you have a great park here. I mean, she was the sweetest little kid and, and he just melted and, you know, really talked to her for a moment and patted her on the, on the head and, 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 you know, was just really nice to her, you know? Oh, how sweet. <laughs> kind of, kind of speaks to his personality and what he represented. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, he, he really was an ambassador for the Walt Disney company. He really, you know, aside from being, you know, having the last name Disney, I mean, he really cared about the company. He cared about the people that cared about the company. And, uh, and, you know, he was, he was a cheerleader from the company. I, I often tell people, I, I view Roy as being sort of the Jiminy Cricket when he was at the company, he, he was sort of the, the, uh, the conscience of the company, you know, he would, he would question things that were being done, uh, and he questioned them appropriately, you know, if he thought, you know, somebody in the company was trying to make just a quick buck on something, he'd call them out on it. And, and I think that was important to maintaining the quality of the brand. Absolutely. Well, and the, the company has lived on and thrived so much over the past several decades, in large part to uh, Roy's contributions and, and leadership. So, Dave, I want to thank you again for uh, joining me to talk about uh, Roy Disney's life. And and as you shared earlier, um, we're, we're recording this in uh, January, and it would have been Roy's 90th birthday. So, yep, January 10th, 1930 was when Roy was born, and he would have turned 90 uh, on January 10th, 2020. So, well, thank you for your book and and serving as a really thorough snapshot of a big part of his life and and different experiences you and other people involved in the company have shared along the way. Well, thank you very much, Brett. I really appreciate that. Appreciate Dave sharing all of those great memories about Roy E. Disney. Definitely get a copy of the Remembering Roy E. Disney book. There's rarely seen photographs and touching anecdotes that truly offer further context of the man that we've heard a lot about but don't quite know as well. And the conversation with Dave continues with the next episode of Notably Disney, which centers on the majesty and music of Fantasia 2000, for which Roy served as producer and Dave as visual effects supervisor. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N- a-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. 
Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.